So welcome back, second session. Um, Janet Newman's going to give a response. Um, I don't know if Janet will need any introduction to most of you, but Janet, um, in terms of the public's work at least, um, it's been really vitally important to the development of the work on publics at the Open University. She founded the Publics Research Programme and has nurtured it for many years. Um, so I can think, so I'm absolutely delighted that Janet can be here. I can think of no better person to give a response. Um, I'll hand over to Janet. Thank you. Um, I feel like I spent most of my life on the edge of institutions or trying to get out of them. From One moment. Sorry, one I've forgotten moment. what I was asked to do. My duty was to ask everyone to make sure their mobile phones are off because um, it can interfere with the recording equipment. So <coughs> I'll interrupt. That's right, that's right, that's right. So if you have left your mobile phone on, please, now is the time to turn it off. Thank you. Sorry, From Janet. being sent out of formal schooling as an asthmatic child to something called an open-air school, you know, which, which didn't have any walls. <laughs> you can still hear that I'm asthmatic and struggle sometimes, including today. Um to work in local government where I was on the edge doing project teams and challenging the bureaucratic nature of what was going on, trying to do more outreach, community-based stuff, to in the academy doing things that were different from the mainstream, having no disciplinary home, and now at the Open University working on questions of publics and public engagement, which is very much at the edge of what institutional life is about not very much in the mainstream. So that's what I bring, because uh, many people don't know me. And I'm pleased to be doing this, and this title I've chosen is actually from the Communist Manifesto, which was around the rise of the bourgeoisie and the melting away, perhaps, of previous social formations, picked up by somebody called Marshall Borman on the self-destructive nature of modernity so this is by no means new and one might question as I'm going to how far those solid things really are melting into air what I want to do is bring ways of thinking that I've picked up through my life and say what might those ways of thinking contribute to understanding some of what you've talked about I'm not going to try to replicate what you've talked about but this is what I bring and I just wanted to say that there is a tradition, there are diff different traditions of trying to think in and beyond institutions. I'm not going to talk about these, but just to say that they all have their own contradictions. So governance theory, which some of you know, all about networks and the displacement of hierarchy and the rise of network ways of governing, came to prominence in the UK under the regime of Tony Blair, and the rise of partnerships and public participation and all that soft stuff, soft forms of governance, which has been very much critiqued, including by me, in terms of the tensions that... So understanding that formation of governance as a set of tensions between hierarchy on the one hand and networks on the other, and those tensions having to be managed organisationally and personally and governmentally. Organisational theory, we've heard a lot about the post-bureaucratic organisation, the rise of project working, flexibility, entrepreneurship, new models of leadership that displace formal management as a hierarchical thing. But of course, bureaucracy was still alive and well. And again, 
what's interested me through my life and in my work is the tensions between <clears throat> those new trendy uh, loose freedom sounding ways of working on the one hand and control discipline bureaucracy on the other uh, I'm going to talk about the third one what executions adds to all of this is the notion of movement so it's not that everybody's done this before because they haven't what executions and the work of you two add is a politics of movement and there's a question it's already in the room about is this progressive is the opening out of institutions a progressive thing it sounds it you know the demise of prisons formal schooling sitting in rows sounds a very progressive thing openness fluidity uh, transcending boundaries but We've already had the question in the room, what's the relation to neoliberalism? And I've struggled a lot in my own work trying to think about the relationship between ways of working that have come out of social movements, especially feminism, but not only feminism, on the one hand, and neoliberal regimes of governing on the other. And that's not, a, that's not a question only asked by me. It's been asked by somebody called Evelina Danino in Brazil, who talks about the relationship between the rise of progressive social movements on the one hand and new forms of the state on the other, neoliberal state. And the term she came up with, which I really like, you always just say it's not one thing or the other. It's not progressive, nor is it reactionary. It's a perverse confluence between different elements. And, and that's something I want to hold on to in what I'm going to say. So what I want to do is at three levels of analysis, really. The first is about <coughs> new theoretical lenses about movement and dynamics on existing forms of institutional change. And we've heard a lot about that before. Uh, we could think of this in terms of the physical movement of bodies. So people moving through institutions. So health is not that you go to a hospital, but you as a body move through different institutional relationships and through different places and uh, governance regimes, actually, in getting treatment. You move through health, community services, hospitals. You move through. You're actually in movement. Uh, same with uh, prison systems, you move through rather than being static in one place. That's one way of thinking about it. A second is a more dynamic conception of governing. And institutions themselves have to demonstrate that they're in movement. This isn't necessarily a physical movement now. It's the idea that a school can only exist if it is in movement from low performance to medium performance or from medium performance to high performance. You, standing still, even if you're excellent, is not an option. You have to demonstrate to the inspectors of schools that you are moving <laughs> to something better, unspecified. Um, and the third element is transformative practices and processes, which is closer to what these guys are talking about. So outsourcing of services and functions to individuals and communities. Reaching out to people 
rather than bringing people to a governing body, reaching out to them, for instance, to make them more responsible for their own health, well-being, uh, the disciplining of their children, the care of elderly relatives. So it's re- it's the whole ethos in public policy we talk of responsabilisation. Do you know this term? You have responsabilisation in Catalonia? Yeah. <coughs> so it's it's a new governmentality that is progressive in some senses because it's about freeing people from the constraints of the old institutional forms. But it has new control mechanisms built into it. This is not anything groundbreaking to say. But the other thing is that bureaucracy is still there. It's not just the new governmentality, the old governmentality is still there. So I have a a 92-year-old relative whose care I'm responsible for, though I don't do the physical care. And But I do have to go every time she has an assessment. I have to be there and sit through. Somebody took four hours last time going through this incredibly bureaucratic form. Um, All of the questions making her feel worse and worse because she didn't fit the categories. Um, And the whole purpose of that is it's a gatekeeper to her being able to access resources. It's not about meeting her needs it's about her being able to tick enough of the boxes so that she can access the resources that she needs to keep her in her own home. And there's a, there's a paradox there in that if she answered a question well, so the question is, can you use all of your own home? Can you move through all of your own home? She'd say yes. But she, that's the wrong answer from the social services point of view because she lives on a first floor flat. If she says yes, she doesn't get the resources. If she says no, she might. So the social worker then said, oh, but you live on a first floor flat. Can you get down to the front door? No, I can't. Okay, you don't have mobility. So all of the answers that she had to say were negative, which was really horrible. So those transformative practices of governing are, are about freedom and dignity and all of that, but they're also about discipline And they're also about bureaucratic gatekeeping to access the resources of the state. So those are three ways of thinking about the politics of movement. Some of them might be institutional, some of them might not, but I'm not interested in whether something is an institution, but how the kind of thinking that you've delivered for us might open up questions that we might not otherwise have asked. Okay, the second level of analysis is about politics. And this is where I want to go back to the work of the publics group. And what we were trying to do was to think about the politics of publicness beyond public institutions. So I was a public servant for many years. I've seen the death of many of the things I believed in that I worked for, the, the death of the, the publicness of the public sphere, in fact, the challenge to the fact that there can be a public sphere separated from the private. But I still think that the notion of publicness as a political category is important. 
There is something beyond the individual. There is something beyond the profile. There is something beyond consumerism that matters. <clears throat> and the question that we were trying to answer was, well, how can we hold on to that sense of the political importance of the public while the very institutions that embedded it are being eroded? And one of the ways we approach that is to think about politics beyond the settlements. So rather than, I won't, I won't bother to explain that, but we were talking about process of becoming, process of emergence, process of assembling. So that rather than saying, where can we find a public, the question changes to where are publics and how are publics being assembled? Where and how are they emerging? How are new public issues emerging and how are people clustering around that? Where are new public groups assembling and, and how are those being fostered? And it's all about that process of becoming. It's a, it's a way of thinking that's really important and um, it, it takes us to many other categories other than publics. So citizenship, for instance, you know, Balibar was talking about citizenship as, as not a fixed category but as always unfinished, always in the making. And we want to think of publics as always in the making. And, of course, that means they can be unraveled too. <laughs> publics aren't necessarily good, uh, but the process of becoming public matters, and we're trying to think about how institutions and organisations can support that process. And that many of the processes that happens to are, in your terms, institutional processes. They're not clustering a public around an institution. They're looking beyond the institution to find ways of bringing people together around an issue. So we were talking about emergent publics, actors, objects, discourses, all as emergent properties in movement around an issue, concern an identity or a form of social action. And that opens up, I think, questions about the politics of emergence. So, as I said a minute ago, publics aren't always good, um, but nor do they necessarily live long. So, politically, we picked on Raymond Williams as uh, a theorist who offered us some categories. Williams uses the categories of the residual, the dominant, and the emergent. And what we've been trying to do is say, well, okay, there's these emergent publics, these emergent issues. Not they're all necessarily good, not that they're all necessarily prefigurative a new world, but how do they intersect with and interact with residual forms and dominant forms? So we have residual concepts of schooling, the old grammar school type model that may, of course, become dominant again. And we have emergent models on the edge that may become dominant and the dominant may fade away. So what are the dynamic properties of those temporal Executional features. 
So that's one political question. (coughs) (coughs) Sorry. Second political question is around the politics of mediation. So publics don't necessarily just emerge on their own, and even when they do, they tend to be mediated through old institutional forms and structures. So this sounds a bit lectury, and I'm sorry, but it's uh, it's stuff that I've talked about a lot, so it comes out. Like this. Um, so if we think about public participation and engagement, which is Nick's field, then who is it who mediates those publics? Who is it who sets them up? Who is it who sets up the rules of the game for the deliberation? Who is it who then mediates the results of that deliberation back into some sort of policy or practice? And that mediator or those mediating practices are very political, but it's a kind of politics that isn't usually very visible because all attention is on the participative process itself. But there are actions involved here. Nick could say more about this later. Um, And the third political feature I've already talked about really is the politics of public making. If, and discourse matters here, if we talk about people as individuals, if we talk about them as citizen consumers, if we talk about them as uh, individuals perhaps, then that strips away any collective sensibility. This is not returning to the social democratic state, you can't, but it's about saying what are the actual practices through which publics might emerge and how and what's the politics behind it. So that's the third thing. And this takes me to... Now, before I leave that, you could think of the politics of public making as a politics of movement through time. And part of the political dynamic there is the possibility of co-option and displacement. So one of the things that interests me a lot is you have a new radical group emerge, you have a new public issue emerge. How might that be co-opted by a dominant organisation, individual or politics? So one of the people I interviewed for the book, uh, which I'll talk about in a minute, was a woman who ran a a centre in Birmingham concerned with questions of poverty and disadvantage. And she said, I've always talked about active citizenship. That's what I've always wanted to foster, you know, citizenships who are active. And then I heard David Cameron speaking my words. They'd come back and they'd bitten me on the bum, you know. (laughs) And it's that process of not only co-opting the discourse, but co-opting the kinetic energy of particular groups as they emerge. It's it's taking that energy and mobilising it for something else. Right, so just going back to mediation. One of the things that interests me is a focus on the actors and the animators who engage in border work. Border work, by border work, I don't just mean the borders of the organisation or the institution. I mean the borders between 
dominant and residual forms. They're political borders as well as physical borders. And this takes me to my... <coughs> I mean, there's a long tradition of this, you know, animators who animate action in public space. But here I'm thinking of something more institutional because these are animators who work the boundaries of organisations. And um, my research um, was about women who took feminist and other political commitments into their working lives and who worked between different political commitments, between institutional commitments and loyalties on the one hand and their identity as activists on the other, who work between organisations, between civil society and government. So all of that boundary work was what characterised their labour. And trying to work out what it was they did, you know, how they inhabited those edges, how they managed that boundary work, took me into <coughs> thinking about their work as relational labour and as creative labour. They were bringing new things into being. And they were also doing quite a lot of emotional labour and identity work. They had to not become institutional actor, nor remain as authentic and untainted by organisational politics. They had to manage those identities. And what interested me is how they managed to keep both identities going. There was a lot of um, literature at the time, Nancy Fraser, Andrew McRobbie, talking about the evacuation of feminism and other social movements, perhaps, through neoliberalism, how feminism would be com complicit with neoliberalism. Because all of this relational labour and stuff is, uh, is a very positive thing to offer to government. But I was, I was worried about that because I thought that neither feminism nor neoliberalism are static. So I mean, we can talk about more about this later, if you like. But they were mediating between different rationalities and different politics. How could they hold open mutually antagonistic positions and forms of subjectivity? How can they hold things open and that, to me, is the value of executions. It's, it's about a psychological stance. I'm trying to talk psychology because I know. <laughs> of, of holding open different identities, different ways of being. And all of that awareness of their work in holding things open and sometimes burning out and sometimes getting co-opted but, but striving to hold things open has led me to challenge the boundaries. And I, I know that you guys have <coughs> challenged the boundaries, saying, well, we know that institutions don't displace institutions, they're held together. But your opening slide was from institutions to institutions. And I do worry about that because it implies that they're mutually uh, exclusive categories. And I think the discussion already has shown that they're not. I'm also rather wary of the concept of hybridity, where you say, well, we've got a bit of this and a bit of that, and we put it together and it's a hybrid form. 
because that, that doesn't resolve any of the political questions. It just doesn't do anything for me. You can have the two things in the same place, but it doesn't say anything about their relationship with each other. So what I want to offer is a way of thinking about understanding changing social formations, which we have to, while also holding on to the idea that this is political. I'm not saying it's normative. I'm not saying that we have to go back to saying one is good and the other is bad. But we have to understand them as political at a number of levels and understand the tensions and contradictions that are produced when those things are brought together and held in some perverse confluence. And I think that's what led me to some of the questions that I think surface around this idea of holding things open. And that openness is very different from institutional openness. It's a conceptual openness rather than institutional openness. It's not an execution. It's a political question. So I'll leave it there. Thank you, Jenny. That was very helpful and very interesting indeed. Um, time for some questions. I'm aware I haven't actually got a timepiece on me, so I've got so thank you very much, Jenny. So yeah, we have it. Oh, we have a good there half, we go. a, good half we go. an hour. <laughs> I've got some university questions at the end if we get stuck. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, well, thank you for that really nice and useful sort of overview um, of different ways of thinking about the, the, these kinds of questions from, from your disciplinary field. Um, I, I, I wanted to sort of pick up on, you know, your, your, you know, you made a strong statement about the question of from yeah. institutions to yeah. institutions. Yeah. Yeah. I believe there was a question mark after the, <laughs> after the. I don't think it was a proposition. I think it was a question. But that that aside, you're quite right to pick up on it because yeah. that is, if you like, one yeah. of the very yeah. important yeah. questions. Yeah. And and you know, and, and I'm, I suppose, I'm not, I'm I'm still not happy to give up too quickly, something about uh, a relationship between an institutional form and an executional form. Mm. Um, which, to put it metaphorically, I mean, <laughs> although this, this is just one aspect of the problem as I see it, you can talk about, in, in a sense, a, a moment at which things are encased in institutions and a moment in which they're distributed mm -hmm. throughout a social field. So a little bit like a fern. The, the, the institution moment is like a fern that, that that's, turns in upon itself in this lovely um, way, but then distributes its spores... Yeah. Uh, in yeah. order to reproduce. So the one movement is, is centripetal. Yeah. The other movement is centrifugal. Yeah. Now, if you look at um, what a number of social scientists, including Foucault, but also somebody mm. like Norbert Elias, Max Weber, Verglin, uh, somebody like Arpad Shakolsky nowadays is, is talking about these terms, a, a group of thinkers who are interested not just in the development of forms of governance and the development of if you like, social forms of order, but in the relationship between those forms of order and, if you like, our subject, subjectivity. So we mustn't forget that what Foucault was proximally interested in <coughs> is the question of how our contemporary subjectivity is formed, how it is that we came to be the being 
that we are. And he's very interested in tracing a genealogy of how we've come to be that, that kind of being. And he's not alone. There's a whole tradition of thinkers. Uh, and one trope within all of those thinkers is the idea that, in a sense, you first get what, what Francisco and, and, and Miguel called a code developed in the context of the shell of an institution. So institutions aren't all 19th century phenomena. We all know that the university was invented in the early medieval period. We also know that the monastery was a very important early institution. What, what was grown in the university? What was grown in the monastery? What forms of subjectivity were cultivated first with the help of a sort of hard shell, but then, like dinosaurs that somehow rely on big heavy armour plating and horns and huge teeth. They then go through an evolution, if you like. They become short, lithe, quick mammals that do away with the, the need for, 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 for that, for that armour. You know, so another metaphor, but I prefer the, the firm metaphor. But what's, what's produced and inculcated in the institutional setting, when a certain point is reached, can be spread, dispersed, like spores throughout. And it's that, that dynamic of, of, of relationship which necessarily requires... As Foucault would say, you know, the, the, you, you, you can only understand the modern forms of subjectivity through what was developed in the modern mm. disciplinary um, conditions and then released. Yeah. Uh, you know, and the, it begs questions like, very broad questions, like what is the relationship between the development of the West and the, the invention of universities in mm. the medieval period? Could you have had what we've got in the West, without whatever was cultivated in those mm -hmm. institutional settings. So that, that, that's what, what I'd like to sort of put forward as a sort of provocation for okay. why we mustn't too quickly okay. give up a, a sort of a, a chronological narrative. Okay. Okay. <coughs> Do you want to say Um, I'm a student um, with the OU and a parent carer. And um, with the uh, outsourcing, I'm interested in, in is um, how it affects people that are in dis disability and how their their resources, their support being declined, how it affects them, and what what is going to be like in place. What what thoughts have gone in that direction? I can't answer that because I don't know. I'm not. I'm not your local authority. But I think that that <coughs> that that begs the question of what's an institution, really. I think it draws attention to the question of resources, the question of support that can't be answered easily without putting a different political question. So, Paul, I wasn't trying to avoid your question. It's just I doesn't have an answer. I, I yes. <laughs> um, Jeff, next, and then come to you. Yeah. I mean, I see this as a discussion, not question and answer, really. Yeah. I don't know whether it's it's something that puzzles me, which you have an interest in. One of your issues that you raised strongly was the question of co being co-opted. Yeah. Now, that's interesting because 
I'm wondering what that does in terms of how you understand power relations that are going on and where the social or the political or whatever it is is being made. It seems to assume that you have always two realms. Yeah. You, yes, which does. is reproduced yeah. also by institution versus yeah. institution. Yeah. Yeah. Is that you've got people trying to do things yeah. different from something that is institutionally or is a regime yeah. or is yeah. a form of governance. Yeah. But then that form co-opts what yeah. they do and works it against them. Yeah. Now there are so that's a particular way of thinking social and and that's what then reproduces the thinking of institutions versus institutions somehow. Now there is work being done I mean for a while now on the back of something else where people are trying to think through the imminence of, for better words, one used to call domination and resistance, but basically yeah. that it's not like that. You don't have two realms. So in that sense, it's not institutions versus institutions. In the institutional, you have things that move and things that somehow appropriate, yeah. and then they change slightly, and these are not necessarily located in the institutional or the nodes of power. They're also, in the very everyday, the ordinary, they don't even have to be yeah. social movements. Yeah. So one's placed with terms like appropriation, much more along the politics of the everyday, yeah. like Williams did as yeah. well, and so on. But not retaining this dichotomizing, and therefore politics is not about co-opting, being co-opted, and yeah. resisting being co-opted. Yeah. It requires a different way of thinking, and I'm wondering whether the, in the idea of institution and this idea about, it has an idea but somehow flattening the social. Not in terms there's no power relations, but somehow you don't have fixed hierarchical positions that try to govern something below. So the top-down, bottom-up metaphor goes. It's like you're everywhere and so when you see the case managers, they're bubbles. There is still a center, but that's a geographical organization of topographic organization, but somehow it's messy. Mm -hmm. And there are power relations in all these bits going on. But it's not like, and so the problem of co-opting yeah. probably is not then the way to ask how power is. I, I don't know. So there is an yeah. element in, I don't yeah. know if it's a question, it's a remark that triggered me. There is something by making co-opting the center. Yeah. There's a particular understanding that leads indeed to opposing institutional versus institutional in a particular way. I, I agree that <coughs> co-option does imply there's a <coughs> inside and outside uh, so it may not be the best word, but there is something about how do we understand the relationship between these processes and neoliberal rationalities. And there is still a state. And, but I think the temporal thing that Williams offered is also helpful. You know, how do things move from being institutional on the edge, if you like, to being something that everybody does, the mainstream. Sorry, but you're right, it does imply inside and outside. Thank you. <clears throat> um, I, I think all the talk is very interesting, but this is a, a question that it's it's especially in, in, in touching for me is when you, you when you ask it how to think politics beyond institutions. Yeah. And I think that this is certainly important because probably nowadays we're witnessing a kind of uh, process that questions the very idea of politics. Yeah. The term, uh, uh, me, uh, as a researcher, for example, uh, interested in STS, in, in mm -hmm. science and technology yeah. studies, I, I have been studying how more and more 
what, what in other time would have been a public affair, now it's a technical affair. It's something that it yeah. must be discussed and, yeah. and, and solved by specialists, experts, yeah. who put politics into brackets. I yes. mean, they cancel politics. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think that's very, very important. And I, th and I think that fits also with this idea of, of that institutions are in, 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 in uh, or questioned by, 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 by uh, institutions. And also it fits with what uh, Paul was saying. It's, we are used to think in terms of subjectivities. For example, uh, if, we, if we don't want uh, um, drivers, drunk drivers, being a danger, so we, we make big campaigns explaining and producing a kind mm -hmm. of the um, a kind of subjectivity of the good driver, mm -hmm. okay? But nowadays we could do things technically yeah. uh, more efficient. Yeah. We can, for example, produce. Uh, cars that they cannot start on yeah. if you don't put your yeah. your seat belt, yeah. you know. <laughs> so in that sense, also this fits with how subjectivities or the production of subjectivities is not in the center of the institutional slash institutional um, uh, functioning. Yeah, and, and 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 I think that that the role of technology as as a very important uh, thing to to have in mind when talking about. Politics. Yeah, it <coughs> reminded of the work of Tanya Lee, Li, who talks about she uses assemblage as her basic framework, and she talks about the process of rendering things technical as depoliticizing. I think that's very important. But you also made me think about the whole shift in governance towards behaviour change, which is, which is, mm. it's not about subjectivity; it's about action. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have a question. It's, it's only a comment, a comment yeah. In, yeah. in order to open the, the yeah. debate. I find very interesting your speech, especially the, the first point, because the first point is about bureaucracy. Yeah. Bureaucracy, I think, is a, a strong connection between institutions and this new social force that we call institution or global assemblages and so on. And I think that uh, it's a challenge for the new social sciences to study the transformation of bureaucracy because bureaucracy was very important in the institutions and I think that the, the new question is how works bureaucracy in these new social forms? Because I think that bureaucracy was a, a principle of abstraction in the institutions and I wonder <coughs> What is happening now with with bureaucracy? Mm -hmm. Because I suspect that bureaucracy has a new form and is legitimating these new social forms in new ways. And for me, it's a very interesting uh, point. I think uh, <coughs> it, it it is interesting because the OU, the Open University, is about openness. It is about weakening the boundaries with the world and opening itself out to to people who would not normally go to university, and yet it is the most bureaucratic organisation that you could imagine. It has to be, because it's dealing with such volume of, of people. But it also embedded, as do many other institutions, embedded 
principles of equality into bureaucratic procedures. And as we move from away from bureaucracy, one wonders about that. You know, what, what are the institutional limits to questions of equality that happen? So I'm running out of voice now. I know a bit of the work that's been... I know it to Beatrice Ibu's work. On, uh, she's written a new book on bureaucratization in neoliberalism, which is precisely built on one of the things you say, which is that bureaucratization has to do with formalizing and abstracting. Mm -hmm. And so the argument she makes is that that process of bureaucratization, although the institution, it might not work in a strong institutional way, as the Weberian model says, but the rationalization through abstraction and so on is part of the f massive form filling people have mm -hmm. to do all yeah. the time now. I mean, from very everyday, you, you can't <coughs> have a day without form filling, numbering, abstracting, and so on. And there's a whole lot of governance yeah. going on. So that's one way in which it would fit your institutionalized mm -hmm. institutional work because it's bureaucratizing the institutional in some way. She doesn't use these words. But there's something very interesting that Janet picked up, which I had not realized as well. Of course, what is not so clear in that process, what happens to the principle of equality that mm -hmm. was central to bureaucratizing. Mm -hmm. There is something to formalizing as well that I cannot, as a bureaucrat, in principle, I don't have massive discretionary mm -hmm. capacity and power to decide whether you get something because I like you or not, mm -hmm. right? I mean, of course, it never worked out, but the principle was built in that organization. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what's happening with that one in this form of bureaucratization, which is institutional in some <coughs> sense because it, it works everywhere in all kinds of governances. It, it Um, so I think the, the emotional orientation towards um, forms of social organization, but particularly towards corporations, yeah. has gone through a very significant transformation in yeah. the last 30 years yeah. that is very much part of the process that um, could be described as, as, a, as a process of institutionalization. Yeah. There's a very interesting paper that, I, that I, I read a few days ago. I can't remember the name of the, of the authors. A couple of Danish um, organization theorists who had access to all of the um, minutes and documents around Danish institutions for the past hundred years and they did an analysis of the semantics, the shifting semantics of the way in which people are invited to think about yeah. the organization from management meetings yes. and so on and they summed it up using some of Lumen's terminology yeah. but very consistent with this as a shift from a sort of you know clear hierarchical um, scenario where you have clear, distinct roles and where people can tell other people what their job yeah. is and they will do that job and so on, to what they call the semantics of love, yeah. that we are invited to form uh, a, an amorous relationship yes. with the corporation. Yes. Yes. And the way that they analyse that, that what they see is at the core of that, you used an expression which I think was also very, very pertinent in, in your presentation, the idea that nowadays we are not allowed to stand still. Yeah. So if you're a school, if you're a public institution, but not just if you're a public institution, yeah. first and foremost, if you're a corporation, yeah. you cannot stand Indeed, still. Yes. And this was recognised 20 years ago in a, in a fundamental way, I think, across um, um, most corporations that re resulted in this quite significant transformation of the emotional relationship. Because if you cannot know what's going to happen in advance, yeah. you have to be operating perpetually with, 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 with the aim of maximizing transient economic yeah. advantages that may yeah. come and go. You've got to live in the realm of possibility all the time. The idea you can't rely upon 
an established sort of profit margin being in place if you execute, yeah. you know, so-and-so procedure according to your plan. It just doesn't work anymore. You've got to, if you like, grow lots of little possible uh, yeah. openings and, and maximise that efficiency. So you, you live in potentiality. You, you, you live in this yeah. sort of... Uh, yeah. So, so it, really interesting analysis. Which I think early in the 80s, a, a management guru called Tom Peters wrote The Tyranny of Transformation, which is very much... On that, and that was in the 80s, yeah. Yeah, I think this, this, this process they track to the, the late 70s, early, yeah. early 80s. Yeah. Is, is what, and, of course, yeah. Marshall Berman's yeah. book was, was yeah. what, 1979, yeah. 1980, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Any more questions? I, I've got a question if, um, yeah. or a comment, if I can. Yeah. I can take this opportunity. Um, it was to do with um, something to do with the, what's at stake in terms of um, how we do critical scholarship and public yeah. scholarship around this area if you like, because yeah. um, I feel like there's, in my head, there's a kind of sense of a bit of a paradox here where we're talking about movement, but at the same time, the institutions concept, and I don't think this is exclusive to the institutions concept, I think it's to other kind of critical theory moves to name these sorts of developments. It kind of feels that they, it, it kind of paralyzes in a sense as well. So it talks about movement, but in a sense, it paralyzes by capturing, by attempting to capture a a whole series of developments under one concept yeah. Yeah. and and to me this what's at stake here one of the things that's, many things that's at stake here rather is um is control and over modes of collectivity and control over you know public imagination about how you imagine your position how you imagine what possibilities there might be for movement how you imagine your you know how you imagine history and and how things develop how you imagine um, what kinds of tendencies and what Janet was talking about in terms of what's emergent, what's residual, what's dominant. So is there relations of simultaneity in, his, in the historical moment or can we really see it as a one you know, transitional moment from one epoch to another where we have an institutional kind of moment, if you like? Um, so I was worried, I'm kind of worried about how that kind of critical theory can work and I understand the tradition you know it's a kind of unmasking tradition you know if we if people know what they really state they're really in then they can critically engage with it better and trans potentially transform it more but on the other side it kind of can paralyze in sense of trying to kind of collapse and reduce um, uh, in us in one in another way so I guess it's that 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 with tension you. between keeping things open by by possibly mapping the field in all its different tendencies and the, the seduction of, you know, one big concept as a way of capturing attention, not attention, you know, in a good, in potentially generative way, capturing attention, focusing attention rather, in order to develop critique around one sort of pressure point. So it's that sort of how you do the public scholarship to, to sort of intervene in these sorts of difficult times this is one for you too, really. Is what I'm interested in. <laughs> <coughs> I remember a similar thing happening when everybody was discovering networks. You know, there's a big debate about whether the, whether there was something called networks that was di was different from everything else. But more particular debate was whether this was something new or a new conceptual repertoire for something that was already there. And I, I mean, can we can we come back to to these two? To, do you want to comment? So, no, I, I think that, that that this is. If you don't mind. 
other thing that, that probably our task is, is a never-ending task, yeah. always looking for new concepts, yeah. trying to <laughs> yeah. explain uh, how reality yeah. works or how things are going on. And, and But it's, it's a never-ending task because, yeah. uh, as, as, as we say, uh, we saw when, when I show that... Uh, slide on, on Foucault saying that this is the discrimination society and he's playing it and, and he's saying but we are living this is what we are living to be <laughs> it's not our present yeah. it's our immediate past yeah. and I think we're always in this in this tension where we only can explain our immediate past yeah. but it's very complicated to explain our present uh, I don't know if it is part of the yeah. of the reason of this never ending should we put it to a close? Any other points anyone would like to make? Um, I really enjoyed that session. I hope you did too. And thanks very much again, yeah. Janet. Yeah.